Welcome everybody to the AJ Osborne Show, where we focus on our core tenets, impact, freedom, and progress. Join me and others as we grow through education and discussion. Welcome everybody to the AJ Osborne podcast, and I am so excited about today's podcast to talk to Jonathan. He is the author of Mindful Money, and this is going to be a good one. So I'm, I, as you know, I don't like to BS at the front. I don't like to do anything like that. I like to jump right into it. So with that, Jonathan, how you doing? I'm well, AJ. How are you? Thanks for having me on. You know, I'm doing great. I really appreciate you coming on. I'm so excited to talk uh, about wealth, what it means to you, and give some actionable steps here for our listeners. Um, it's an interesting subject, but before we get into any of that, of course, let's let's give some context and, and some background on you, where you came from, talk a little bit about what you do and specialize in. That would give our listeners better context. Sure. I mean, so there's there's a two distinct parts of my life that come together in mindful money. So I've been investing actually in individual equities for 40 years. I've been investing in real estate for 25 years. I've been a financial advisor for 25 years. I've been a financial teacher educator for about 10 years. But when I was a kid, we didn't have much. So I sort of developed this really deep interest in money and in wealth and in investing and in business. Uh, This continued through high school and it started off in college. But in college, I got bored uh, and switched gears. And I studied comparative religion. I ended up graduating with a degree in philosophy and religious studies. And I moved from Montana to California to go to the Lutheran Seminary. Um, And when I got there, they didn't have the scholarship that I was promised. I had the letter. I showed up at the door and they're like, no, sorry. Um, We had had a rough year, so no scholarship. And so they said, why don't you go to one of the other schools? So there are nine seminary schools at this, at the Graduate Theological Union. And I went door to door looking for somebody to cover the cost of education for me. And the Buddhist school said, sure, we got some money. We'll we'll cover it. So I switched gears from Lutheran seminary to to Buddhist studies specifically, had a ball, loved it, just loved every minute of it, loved meditation, loved everything about it. Uh, But then, you know, two and a half years later, my wife at the time says, Jonathan, it's my turn to go to school. And so I said, okay, I'm going to drop out of a religious studies program in Buddhist studies. Uh, I, there's no, that doesn't create a job path. And so I went back to what I knew growing up. I went back to, you know, I interviewed at Dean Witter. Dean Witter hired me and I started selling stock. I started calling people up and cold calling and trying. I was a glorified salesman. I did that for five, six years. Figured out that after five, six years doing that, I can't serve two masters. I can't both both support the client and the big firms at the same time. Uh, so I started my own company in 2002, and that's been it's been a pretty crazy ride for the last 20 years. So where are you at now? Are you still in California? Or are you back in Montana? I'm still in California. Still in California. I I noticed your uh, the company Bitterroot. Uh, I I love the Bitterroots. I backpacked in the Bitterroots. So fantastic. You mentioned the sawtooths before. You know, used to go solo backpacking in the Sawtooths. Just, just yep. beautiful, beautiful area of the world, man. Yeah, that's I named. Uh, so it's kind of funny because I, you know, um, I named all my companies after the um, Bitterroot ecosystem because you know I. So I grew up in Idaho, which for all of you that don't know, the Bitterroots run through on the border of Idaho and Montana. 
And the Bitterroot Wilderness is a huge wilderness. And uh, so I named um, my uh, holdings company Bitterroot. Then I named my um, funding company Cedar Creek Wealth, which is um, the headwaters of the Clearwater River that comes out of the Bitterroot Mountains. And I named my benefits company Clearwater Benefits. So um, for you know, only us people that grew up on on the in and around the Bitterroots would understand any of that. But um, I thought it was a cool idea because the Bitterroots act as ma- basically a giant watershed. So yep. those specific storms that come across, they come into Idaho and they get stuck on the Bitterroots, these massive mountains in the Rockies that just trap them. And it creates an actual rainforest in central Idaho. And I always loved the concept that these this the all the storms and everything gets caught up in there and it creates this thriving ecosystem. So I thought financially as my company as a watershed or a capturer of wealth. And yeah, very cool. Yeah. So that's how I viewed it. So uh yeah, but no, the Bitterroots are incredible, fantastic country. No one's ever there. It's like empty. You know, it's yep. part of the world where, you know, you're there with wolves and grizzlies and that's about it. So it's a, a cool, cool area. But now you're in California and this is just an amazing story to me because you go from uh, you know, going to a Lutheran school, to a Buddhist school, to selling stocks, I would not say that your um, uh, trajectory has been uh, normal. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. <laughs> Which I like. And uh, so um, when, you, you know, when you were coming out and when you started selling stocks and you were coming out of school and you're doing all these things, right? Um, you know, what, why did you get, take such a big 180? Why, what made you go into the world of finance from uh, religious studies? Was it oppor- just opportunity or – because, I mean, that is a big swing. No, so, I mean, it's, it's a great question, but it's not – remember the, the origin. The origin is one of deep interest in finance, and I actually yeah. purchased my first stock when I was nine years old. Okay. And I grew up – my dad had a couple pieces of real estate, and, well, he had one fourplex that was just a – it was, I, I don't know if you can swear on this thing, but it's a, it was just a piece of crap. It was always yeah. falling apart. Uh, and I, I was the kid who had to you know, pump out the basement when the thing flooded. I had to tear out the, the walls that had the, you know, so we did a lot of work on this place growing up. Yeah. But I was raised with the idea of real estate and with the idea of investing. We just, we just didn't have any money. Like we, we, I bought a stock when I was nine. I bought another stock when I was 12. I lost money. I made money. Never really got anywhere, but I always wanted wealth. Yeah. Um, my, my friends, parents, and my friends went on great vacations. They drove new cars. They lived in nice houses. Um, I didn't. And I saw that difference. Like they had new ski gear. I got to get my ski gear at the ski swap. They had, they had season passes. I had to work at the mountain to ski. Um, so that was very obvious to me. Uh, and so I, I wanted wealth. So I studied it as a kid. And the reason I studied philosophy was I got bored with finance. So I, I did this 180 into philosophy and religious studies, but then I did another 180 when I came out. So it's actually a 360. Yeah. Like I, you know, yeah, I started off all the way back around. Up, yeah. Yeah. Now, exactly. now, you know, studying philosophy and finance though, that's a, you know, actually two very parallel things in my mind. 
Totally. So, totally. you know, um, you know, that's, you know, it's interesting. Um, but tell me what were your goals? Like, So when you come out here and you're selling stocks, right, you have a very simple objective. And I love that you talked about how you cannot serve two masters, right? So when you decided, hey, I'm out of this, I'm going to go work with just the clients. So my goals or incentives or whatever you want to call it are in line with the client, right? What are these things? Like, what did you see that was a need for clients and how did you even approach that? Like for the average Joe out there, what were you saying that you needed and would need to do that you weren't providing them selling them a stock? So I, I wish I would, I wish I could say that, you know, I was smart enough to just figure that out on my own. I wasn't. So I, I had, uh, uh, in six years, I was at seven different Wall Street firms. So I have been at, I, I started off at Dean Witter, Dean Witter and Morgan Stanley merged. I moved to Payne Weber, UBS and Payne Weber merged. I moved to Smith Barney. I was there for three months. I moved to Prudential, Prudential and Wachovia merged. So I, I learned different lessons from different managers and, and different sort of rules of how Wall Street works um, along the path. And every single time I, I would leave a place, I'd be like, oh my God, this is, this is hell. Like, I cannot believe these people do this. And it was horrible. And I almost quit a bunch of times. There was a guy named Ernie Guzman who was a re he took me under his wing. Um, he taught me a lot about how to do it right. And ultimately, I ended up asking clients. I had six or seven really good clients. I had 300 customers that had purchased stock or municipal bonds or something from me. But I had six people that said, hey, Jonathan, I'd like to go a little deeper. I'd like to like you to think about my life and what's the best path for me and in investing long-term and is this a good idea? And they, they bring ideas to me that were not about stocks and bonds. Maybe it was real estate. Maybe they had a private company they want to talk about. And I loved that. And so what I ended up doing is I ended up asking those six or seven clients, hey, what would you like in a firm? If I was to leave and start my own firm, what would you like? And they all said the same thing. They all wanted more deeper planning and they wanted more education. So for the last 20 years, our firm has been based on deeper planning, and education. So I'm not a genius. Took me a while to figure it out. When I found out, though, when I figured it out, that's we just went deep in that. We haven't we haven't strayed from that since the beginning. So when you wrote your book, what was the intent of the book? And get, why don't you give people a little framework of the book and, and what the focus is on it? But I'm always interested to know like the purpose of of writing your book and what what were you thinking going into it? Yeah. So there's the, the source of the book was a conversation I was having with a client in March of 2009. And so March of 2009, the world, as you, you may remember this, the world was completely coming undone. Like the market was off 57%. Real estate globally was just in the tank. Banks and hedge funds had gone under. Um, it was a rough time for financial markets. And my client at the time was saying to me, you know, Jonathan, I, I make this big deposit every single year. It's March. It's time to make the deposit. I don't want to make the deposit. And the reason I don't want to make the deposit is I just think everything's going to fall apart. And I just said, you know what? I understand the feeling. And I, I don't know how to overcome the feeling, but I do know that if you don't make the deposit, you will be very disappointed later. I know that it does recover. I don't know how. I don't know when. I don't know how long it takes. I don't know what trajectory it's going to take, but I know it recovers. And the money you put to work today will be the best money you ever invest in the next 20 years. And turns out that that's true. I had no idea, like I had no proof of this concept, but out of that, out of that conversation, she said, Jonathan, you have to write a book. 
You have to take this philosophy and you have to create a book. And so what I did is I, as I started writing a book. The book has three parts. The first part of the book is debunking the illusions that we get from financial media, from financial press, from Wall Street, from, from all the places that are really trying to sell us stuff, not really trying to give us good advice. And what are those illusions? Oh, God, there's, there, are, there are many. Uh, uh, the, one of the big ones is that volatility equals risk. Um, we, we can go into, we can go to, you know, any of these in as much depth as you want. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but we confuse, like we measure digs and zags in markets, uh, as we call it risk, right? Markets go down. That's risk. Markets go up. That's not risk. That's an interesting thing. That's just volatility. There's a natural zig and zag in real estate. There's a natural zig and zag in stock markets. And we shouldn't view that as risk. We shouldn't be afraid of that. That is normal. The normal peak to trough decline in a stock market in any one year is about 15%. That means at some point in a normal year, markets will go down 15%. Over long terms of long periods of time, they go up much, much, much more than that. But every year, they're going to go down. And don't be surprised by that. You should embrace that. That's an opportunity to rebalance. It's an opportunity to create value. Risk is human response to this. Risk is I'm afraid I get out or I'm excited mm-hmm. I get in. The risk is the human behaviors. That's that I think is the biggest thing that I see is the confusion of risk and volatility. That's one of the things, one of the illusions that I see of the, of the eight that we talk about in the book. That's awesome. I, 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 I like that one a lot. The, 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 the middle part of the book, it's critical to understand that one. The middle part of the book is all about, and this is, this is the religious studies coming out, right? Yeah. It's thousands of years of, of, philosophers and um, monks and priests thinking about it and more modern psychology thinking about it. What are the sources of happiness? Where do we come up with well-being? What are the things that we can actually, levers we can pull that have positive effects on our lives, make us happier people? And these are the ones we know. The philosophers have been talking about for years, right? Health, learning and experiences, uh, relationships, meaningful work, accountability to yourself, like knowing what you want, going after what you want, generosity, optimism, um, gratitude. These are the things that we all know. Uh, and this this is what we should use as the foundation of a financial plan. And then in the third section of the book, we help people write a financial plan. So that's a long that's a long way to the, to answer yeah. the question. And, and, and the question was, for whom is the book written? What is the purpose of the book? What I what I recognize after many, many years in the business is I can't help everybody. I have a different opinion. I have a different thought process around this. I think that thought process has value. I have clients that say, hey, you really should talk about this more broadly. You should help more people with this. There's no way I can do it on a one-to-one basis. So I wrote a book to sort of encapsulate the philosophy so people could actually help themselves with it. So it's really, an, it's the goal is the impact with that book. Yeah. No, I like that. I think that's a uh, very intri- intriguing way to uh, approach it. Um, and two, I like this idea of uncovering the fallacies. And to start off any financial journey, it's to uncover the fallacies that are embedded into us from you know, society and everything else like that, which um, tend to be rampant. Um, and it's interesting, the infrastructure that is designed around the fallacies. Um, And as a normal working person, I feel like, you know, you live in two worlds. 
right? You live in the world of investing finance economy, right? And then you live in the other world that is, this is a world you shouldn't be playing in or thinking about. And um, you're a W-2 person, and those are the only rules that apply. And the idea that there's actually two different worlds, and some people play on basically a different rule set, um, is really eye-opening to a lot of people as they grow older. And it's that change, I believe, in these deep-rooted fallacies that they're uncovering and finding out, oh, these aren't really true. Yet I've been operating on these for my whole life. And that really sets people back a lot and really, really fast. Um, when you're working with people, there's two different phases. There's, you know, you have wealth creation and, and wealth protection, right? What is the area that you focus on most with your clients? Yeah. I mean, that's, I'm blessed in that I feel most of what we do is wealth protection. That's at the end of the day, I work with people that have, whether they've sold a company or they have just retired or they're approaching retirement. The question is really one of how do I make sure that the stuff that I have lasts the rest of my life? Mm-hmm. How do I invest that in a way to, to make sure I don't, you know, destroy myself, leave something for my family, those kinds of things. Um, that was for the last 20 years. In the last year, the thing that we've done is we've actually built courses. The book was written and published in 2017. Um, we've built courses to be more on the helping people out in the start of this of this path. And I do work a lot with folks that are just building, starting to build wealth. And I and I, and I want to say that it's not impossible to build wealth just by earning a living and consistently yeah. putting money in your 401k. Mm-hmm. There's a there, I think the vast majority of us would be would be far better served by just following that path than trying to do anything creative or anything anything crazy. Uh, I got a really good friend of mine who I've known for. I mean, he was my junior year science partner, um, and all he's ever done is he got a good job out of college, and all he's ever done is put money in his four hundred one k. He's fine. He's great. He's going to be in fantastic shape when he retires in fifteen years. Right? Um, that's the slow and steady path, and yep. it works if you work it. Right. That's yes. the that's the challenge. So I don't I don't want to take that away from people. Yeah. The idea of wealth creation through real estate or through your own business or ownership of something, I think that's a ton of fun. I love to support people in that in that effort. I do I do my own angel investing. I do my own investing in small local business. I do my own investing in real estate because I love that stuff. I think it's so much fun. You know, it's it's an interesting thing that, you know, I like to tell people, you know, wealth investing entrepreneurship and everything, it's not for everybody. Um, And that's okay. Right? That's totally fine. You don't want to have people do things that they're either not interested in. And, you know, for me, really, it's not about risk. Like a lot of people are like, yeah, I'm risk adverse. Because in, in my opinion, I'm like, well, what I'm doing is actually way less risky than what you're doing. Right? Even though when you look at it, it looks way more risky. Um, but if you like from the outside, but when you come on the inside, you know, I view it, I'm like, well, hold on here. You're putting your money in a bank, which you're getting less than inflation on that money. That bank is then taking your money and giving it to somebody else, which they're making over inflation. So they have a guaranteed profit set in on their money and their cost of that money. And those people are people like me. 
I'm taking that money and I'm investing it and I'm getting four or five times or more the cost of inflation by buying things that the person that's putting the money in the bank that's giving it to me uses and pays me then. So, you know, if you look at it how I look at it, I go, you're giving me your money to create the thing that you have to pay me to use. And then I collateralize that. So I get rid of the risk and I put it in the bond market, which you go and buy for protection. So, I, you know, once you get deeper into it, I go, hold on here. I'm taking your money. I'm using it. And you pay me to utilize that in the economy. Then I take that risk away from me because I don't want risk. And I put it in the bond market, which you buy my risk to get rid of your risk. And, you know, when I start to look at it that way, I go, it's not that it's risk adverse or it's not that I'm doing something that I think is inherently more risky, but it's inherently less predictable. Right. But two, at the same time, for the most part, unless you're investing in, you know, the stock market or you're actually putting that, if you're if you're putting money in the bank, it's predictably losing money. That's it. Right. You just predictably lose money. So outside that. You have to get above inflation and you have to make that mark. So you simply don't lose money and it goes and you're really targeting a certain percentage over inflation. So your money will also grow at a predictable rate over time. Because I like what you say. I don't believe in EMT, right? I don't believe in efficient market theory. I think that's um, not true in the short term, but in the long term, it's absolutely true. And so, like you said, the ups and downs, the volatility people think of as risk. I don't think of that as risk, right? This is just markets adjusting. But over the long term, they always adjust correctly and things always go up, right? That's the whole thing. We can get into fiat currency in a certain way, that, but there's no reason to. It's just the amount that that speeds up. The point being, though, is, right, you have to get that money and put it into something or else you're going to lose it. And for most people, that is as much as they want to be doing. Because also it's, what I did take a lot, took a lot of work. It's, I mean, it's, I think there's a, one of the foundation illusions, and this is one of the things that I think you're talking about here. This, this, and this underlies everything. The idea that currency equals money. We have yes. a choice of what we protect. We can protect our currency or we can protect our money. I'll call that purchasing power. And if, if all we do is focus on protecting currency, then a bank is a great place but you will always, always, always lose your purchasing power if you focus on protecting your currency. And the illusion, the thing that we've told people is we've told people that banks equal safety, FDIC equals safety. What we didn't tell them is, yes, it protects its safety of currency, it's not safety of money, of purchasing power. And so you will slowly, slowly erode your purchasing power when you attempt to protect your currency. A dollar is always a dollar, but it never translates into the same amount of goods a year from it. I love that. That's a perfect way to think about it. And I, like that's a it's a fabulous way. And that's why banks are great for short-term holdings because I need my currency to acquire to do something cash on hand in case it needs to be liquid because I need it for emergency funds everything else like that. So I need to protect it and I don't protect it under a pillow because I can lose it, it can burn all that other kind of stuff. So I'm putting it in a bank and essentially I'm letting them use my money for the protection they give me, right? Right. But, or yep. currency, because right? that's an important distinction. But as far as money goes, right, that is a horrible place to have it. 
Um, yep. That uh, wonderful distinction. I absolutely love that. I think that's great. And a simple way for people to kind of understand. And, you know, when you talk about these changes, like you just talked about, the understanding that change right there, currency versus money, that changes how you think about everything you're doing. That yep. simple thing. And that's something, you know, my wife started a school and it's a private school. It's business, um, right? They're, uh, it's K through um, or preschool through eight. They're opening up their high school right now. Um, they've got like 30 something teachers in it. And it's all around, you know, we, we say it's a business school, which is, is, is funny that you think this, but really it's just basic stuff, right? Like when they went to colleges and asked, what are, what what is needed here? The number one thing that came back from all the colleges is they're ill-equipped for basic life, like the basic things, right? We're talking about literally checkbooks. We're talking about having a job, what taxes are, feeding themselves outside of restaurants, right? Like really basic things. And so they said, we need to incorporate life skills into this which a huge amount of that is basic financial principles. Mm -hmm. And this is what a lot of the things they talk about, eliminating or creating a dynamic thought process around money and how it's used, why it exists, how it exists, and where it comes from, right? And that is so lacking in the educational system that people come out and they don't even know the, the basics of basics. And these, these fallacies are the building blocks of their how they're creating a future and what they're doing. And until you address those, you can't address the bigger stuff with your clients right. or whoever you're thinking about or, or personally. I can't create an investing philosophy or I can't create um, a, a, you know, a plan, a financial plan, if I don't even understand the basics. So right. I think that attributing massive educational time to understanding which is funny. I'm sure you do. I still do. I still love understanding better the banking system. I still love understanding how the Fed works within our banking system and how those things work. I read about it all the time, right? Even though that's really, really basic, it has nothing to do with actually my investing strategy. Those basic things will shape that overall. Um, yeah, we don't. We don't touch. I mean, we are so stressed about money as a culture, um, but we don't ever touch education around it. It's like, all we'd have to do is just teach some basics and people, the, some of the inequality would go away if we just understood how financing works, if we understood how the banking system works, if we understood how, you know, the difference between currency and money, um, it, it would be huge, but we don't do that. We focus on, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Uh, and that's, yep. that's to our detriment. I mean, we'd yes. have to know those things. We have to actually know, I don't know, I, I did take a, a, a home economics class when I was in Middle school? Yeah, middle school. This is, you know, 30 years ago. And we I learned how to cook uh, uh, escargot. I, I, I sewed a pillow and learned how to balance a checkbook. And that was the sum total of my financial education growing up was balancing a checkbook. And no one even does that anymore. Yep. But the basics of economics and finance, forget about it. No one knows that. Which is ludicrous to even think about that that's not what we're taught in school, where that's the principle. Schooling is designed to teach us to come out into the economy for all intents and purposes and be a net positive, be a means of production, right? Whether that's through art, whether that's through a skill, it doesn't matter. 
right? Like it doesn't matter. You could be a musician, you could be anything like that, but the uh, how we build in modern day anything, build your dreams, build yeah, help poverty. It doesn't matter. It's all based around these principles, but yet it's not even taught. And then we don't understand why such vast inequality exists when you have the rich that are sending their kids to private schools to understand investing principles, right? And then people that live in impoverished areas are going to schools and the teachers are just basically babysitting and trying to get their kids through it. And you go, we have an absolute not only wealth gap as far as currency, but it's a gap in education. And oh, yeah. I think it's the fundamental problem that we have, that we took a turn where we decided that these things you don't talk about in schools. So then you have to pay extra to learn the basics of how our economy works and then not understanding why those people have a leg up. It's so simple, but for some reason, it's just not addressed or talked about. And you know, yeah. we, we're lucky though today, we live in an era where you could put out a book me and you can jump on this podcast. We can talk about the basics of investing, financials, right? Get a job. You need to understand what inflation is. You need to understand, don't stash your money in a bank. Are you putting it in a tax savings account? Is that a 401k? What's the difference between a Roth, right? And a SEP. And how is that going to play out when you're, when you're older, right? What's the difference between aggressive, large cap stocks, not bonds? Why do they exist and why they're important? And then you throw people in that mix and don't understand why some get out of it better than others. It's, it's crazy to me, but we live in a great time that we can have this conversation. Anybody can listen to it. Right. I mean, the real, so it's so difficult. And this is what I struggle with this all the time because the information is out there. I know I have, uh, I have two different news readers. I have one news reader that's subscribing to, you know, all the different fed governors and what they have to say and all the different what Goldman Sachs has to say, what JP Morgan has to say, you know, I, I, I have all this information about markets and economy, and it comes into my newsreader every single day. I don't have to think about it. I wake up, I've got, you know, 400 articles that I can take a look at. And I look at, you know, 200 of those articles, skim the rest. I have another newsreader that talks about, um, it is, it's news blur, actually. And it, it, what comes into that is what makes a meaningful life, health, all those kinds of things. So I'm, I look at both of those things every day. You know, I, I have a routine in the morning, I work out, I meditate, I read. And by, by focusing on both of those things, I get an education about, A, what's going to make me happy and what's going on in the world at the same time. Uh, and I do that every day. And I know there's yeah. people that never, never do that, ever. ever. And the reality is it's out there. Yes. But having no exposure to it ever growing up. You don't even know what to look for. You have to, yeah, we don't, yeah we, don't, we don't pursue it. Yep. Is yep. there any wonder that we have the inequality that we have? Is there any wonder that we have the, the misunderstanding about how many works that we have? Uh, and, and it's on us, actually. This is what why the podcasts are such a good idea. It's on us to actually try to spread it further. That's yes. why we write the books. As you said, that's why you have mm -hmm. the podcast. Make make this stuff available to folks to learn. Well, and, and you know, it's interesting, too, that you talk about, and, and this is why I love this idea of your, your book, and, you know, having this meaningful life and everything, because people often ask me, they go, okay, well, what's more important to you, right? Health family, money. And I'm like, whoa, why do you divide those things up? Does your life mysteriously say, oh, money doesn't involve family. Money doesn't involve health, right? And if you're unhealthy, that's not going to affect your finances or your family. No, life doesn't do that. That's not how it works. They're all together, all of it. And they affect each other. I like to think that, you know, social problems are simply symptoms of economic problems. We see it all the time, right? Why in the United States 
did the North free slaves from the South because of the Industrial Revolution and they no longer needed slave labor. That's why. It was a symptom of a freeing economic status and a better people that didn't need that labor, right? And why do you have all of these problems socially and everything and inequality? Well, it's a symptom of economic problems. And the more, because economics is like leverage, right? They lever, it leverages everything. So these inequalities are so vast and they're so massive. They spur all of these problems. They're in your face. They're blunt, right? And we see them all. And it's amazing to me how if we were healthier, happier, we had more time to study, right? We could have, be in financial control. You don't need to be rich at all. You just need to be in financial control, Need and enough. You, you need, need enough. enough. What that would yeah. do psychologically to the vast majority of the people. 50% of marriages end in divorce because of finance. That's it. Well, Money. Lots of reasons. Finance well, is a lots big of reasons. <laughs> but it's the number one reason, though. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, over, I guess what I was trying to say, over 50% of the divorces are caused because of money, which, right. if you think about that, and how much that affects children, the next generations, it's, you know, it's not that these things are separate, it's life. And I love how this idea of, you know, studying all of it together and applying all of it is just a mode for you to achieve what you're trying to achieve in life. It's well, not I about cruel or anything else. It's, I think that wealth, and I think, I think reasonably so, I think wealth is having kind of a, a rough moment. I think that I think mm -hmm. wealth is being flogged a little, and I think yeah. I think wealth deserves it a little bit. Um, I think that there's a there's a movement of wealth to separate itself, to you know, to 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 circle the wagons and protect itself from not wealth, and and I think that that's dangerous. Um, and I think there's I'm not I'm not inventing anything here. I think there's plenty of uh, commentators that talk about this. I think that for all of us, for us to be really successful, all of us have to be successful. Absolutely. I can't, I can't wall myself off. So we have to no. reach across and we have to help and we have to support and we have to build up. And I don't know if that's a, I don't know if that's UBI. I don't know if that's different social structures. I don't know. I'm not the expert in those kinds of yeah. things, but I do hope that we can sort of find a common ground. We can reach across and try to help each other understand what these challenges are. And I think that's where, that's where these kinds of things are really important. This communication mm -hmm. is really, really important. It opens doors and we yes. need to open doors. Well, individual success is a fallacy. Self-made is a fallacy. That doesn't exist. And right. the bigger wealth gaps become in society and the bigger the circle the wagons become, the more likely wealth destruction will occur. Because right. in an actual functioning economy, it's been shown through every single nation all the time, a rising tide has to lift all ships. If not, the rising tide takes everybody out. It just kills everybody, right? So that idea of this massive gap or this circle of wagons, that's a momentary thing. And it can go two ways. Right. And the two ways are not good. Or right. One way is good. The other way is not, right? Because that divergence in capital, and really now we're talking about capital, not money, which I view capital, you have actual assets, right? Assets get so big and so spread apart as far as value, net income, and everything goes, the base can no longer support the capital that is derived as value off the base, and it starts to collapse within itself. 
right? You need the base to also rise. And that discrepancy economically, you have social problems and everything else pop up because of it. And now there's lots of reasons for these symptoms, which we don't even need to get into. The point, though, is being aware that it happens and being aware of what it means. And any person that is wealthy, right? And I hate people that get up and talk about, you know, I'm self-made or no, you're not. Nobody is. That doesn't exist. So we have to forget all of that stuff, right? You stand on the shoulders of amazing people that have come before us, an amazing country, on and on and on and on. Now, I am not in any way, shape, or form saying I don't believe that any that an individual should be so wealthy, we look at them and say, geez, you're wealthier than God. That's not what I'm saying. I'm all about people becoming astronomically wealthy. But that is a fallacy of wealth, like you talked about, that we put into our minds. And then when we think that, you think, I've got to do this by myself because he's self-made. So I shouldn't ask other people for help, or I should neglect the help that I have for some reason. No, you need to get as much help as you can. You're not going to do it on your own, and you should never think that you have to. Also, wealth is not a prize to be won, right? It's not winning the lottery. These are all fallacies that these arcs and storylines of, like, I, I think of, like, the entrepreneur superstar, Right. That we tell ourselves, oh, he was just in a garage and he had this great idea and all of a sudden he became a billionaire. Well, you forget about the venture capitalist that came in and built business systems, the hundreds of thousands of employees, the bank, the luck, everything else. We need to talk openly about this and be aware of it so we can apply those same tools and levers into our life. And that's important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have to in order to spread the wealth, we have to know what the true source of the wealth is. And it's not it's not always just some really cool guy. Uh, it's yes. really smart. It's uh, and. It's, it's interesting because when you put that in the context of where the wealth resides today, and you can point to the places socioeconomics are harder, you can point to uh, inner city uh, mm-hmm. youth, you can point to the, the pay gap, men and women, you can point to all of these things where the amount of venture capital that female founders get versus male founders. And it's, it's, not, that, it's not that female founders don't have great ideas. It's just that they haven't been recognized yet. Uh, and so, so for us as, as stewards of capital, we can look to that and say, hey, that's actually an opportunity. There's yes. an untapped business opportunity there because it's largely ignored by the vast majority of investors out there. So we can actually say, hey, let's support these other investors uh, and let's, let's, let's build them up so that they can then look to their communities and say, say look, this is possible. Come join us. Come, and we can use that as a as a motivation, as an inspiration for folks. But what I've learned in 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 my own teaching, my own financial education, is I'm not the right teacher for a large majority of people. Absolutely, um, I'm, I'm the right teacher for people who look like you and I. Uh, they will listen to me. Um, I have their attention. But there's people that don't look like me that need to have a teacher that looks like them. And there's just fewer people that look different than me. I think the financial services world is 70% like me and older. And so we need to have other folks come out and do some teaching as well. And they're coming up. They're coming up through the ranks. It's great to see. There's a guy, um, you should have him on your podcast, Desarte Yarnway. He's uh, out of Cal. He's a football player. He's now, he's now some sort of chief community officer for Altruist, which is one of the new, one of the new uh, custodians out there that's competing against Schwab and TV Ameritrade. And he's incredible. 45 years ago, he, he, you know, I never heard of him before, but he's just everywhere now. It's just, there's great people coming up. Yeah. And and this is, you know, a thing that I also like to think about these fallacies and things that we take, these end up becoming somebody's strengths. Like, I think there's more opportunity right now that if you are a female or a minority 
than there ever is for some middle-class white kid right now. Because you can use that to your ability. Like, my wife's totally used it to her ability, right? Because I think that's up and coming. And two, it's a story. We talk about these arcs and these stories, right? Where you got to come up and you got to say, hey, I'm doing this. And you need to get out there and support. Now, you have to get rid of the biases that are out there, right? That you're telling yourself. But once you conquer that, there's so much upside to be had. The amount of capital that's sitting on the sidelines, the amount of opportunity in our economy that's ready to be tapped Like if you're someone that's listening to this podcast and you're saying, oh, I'm a minority or I'm a woman, so I can't achieve those things. First of all, that's just BS. And second of all, use it to your advantage, right? Right. Use it to your advantage. We all do. I became paralyzed. You better believe I'm using that to my advantage. That sucked. It was a struggle I had to go through, right? And I'm going to use it. I'm going to talk about it. And people are going to go, I want to hear from the kid that got paralyzed, right? I'm going to use that. And everybody should use their downplays to their strengths. And the benefit we have today is that the systems that I think maybe would have not allowed that to happen are eroding away, right? You can start a podcast now and anybody can listen. You can go onto Instagram. And so you have power in today's age that individuals have never had before. And that's reshaping also the wealth landscape, Right. That's yep. totally changing the way that people are funding money. I was reading this article that was on um, they were talking about how the old ways of venture capitalist and funding money. Right. And getting are changing so vastly that the people that built a personality or a brand are actually disproportionately getting the capital. Now, you can take somebody's re- overall returns in a marketplace and they will get far less capital than somebody that is well-known, just for the fact that they are known, right? Well, to any individual, that's a great opportunity, right? (laughs) Because you could go, listen, I can get out here, I can state my beliefs, I can say my opinions, my investing stuff, and I can get well-known, and you can use that vehicle to start your career. And you can use that vehicle to start setting yourself apart. This is totally different than the elite schools, right? As people grow up and you have to get into this club, you have to do all that. So a lot of the stuff we're seeing is, I think, this wealth idea and this capital idea being turned on its feet or uh, turned upside down on how it's accrued, who it's going to. And in times of great shift like we're in today, there's massive opportunity for individuals. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, the, the, the attention economy, I think it's Seth Godin, it's called it the attention economy. Yes. And it's, if you, if you can garner someone's attention, if you can garner thousands of people, tens of thousands of people's attention, that is, that is probably the most powerful asset today. You know, whether Absolutely. that's, whether you can start a SPAC with that, the special purpose, purpose acquisition, you know, vehicle, or whether that's a, whether that's a, a following that leads to you know product sales on your on your YouTube channel or whatever, it's it's in, the opportunity is incredible, but there's still a whole bunch of people that haven't that don't know how to access that opportunity. Yes, right. They, they don't know. They can't see the opportunity from where they are, and that's where and I that's think that, what needs to be changed. Yeah, that's the ground game that we. That's need to the have ground play. game yeah. that needs to yeah. be changed. Yeah. And, you know, too, it's interesting because this is a mode that's never or this is a thing that's never it's not like this was any different in the past. It's just that it was more restrictive. So even if you think of like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, who became the rock star real estate person. Right. And you think if you ask anybody, well, how did he become so wealthy? Well, he started investing in housing houses and then he scaled. Right. Well, that's actually not true. What he did is he owned a bunch of houses. He wrote a book on it. And he got on Oprah. Yeah. 
Yep. That's how he became so successful. Yep. And so for me, it's like, once again, like we talked about learning those fallacies, understanding the truth behind the situation, and then seeing if he wouldn't have gotten on Oprah, if he wouldn't have written the book, he would not be anywhere even close to the wealth he's at today. It wouldn't even exist. Right. Right. Um, right. His wealth was I don't even know if it was in the millions at the time. He became, he became a rock star. He, became, mean, he became a rock star. A rock star. That's where his wealth came from. That's rock star. where his wealth Not came from. Yeah. 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 Yep. And that was because he got into the special club, the Oprah so, effect. Are, are we saying that the, the, the way to wealth is to become a rock star? Just go I'm on sure Oprah, how. everybody. <laughs> it's so easy. See, this is the solution. If you're listening to this podcast, go on Oprah, right? You know, it's just everybody can do it. <laughs> this is a direct line. <laughs> no, but, but two, though. Like I like to say, you take those principles and apply them to yourself, right? You wrote a book, although I'm sure it was just purely out of your own generosity and the willing to help the world, you also knew that by getting attention would also bring capital, right? I wrote a book. I wrote it because I wanted everybody to know about my investing philosophy, everything else like that. But two, I knew that it would bring capital. I'm giving it away for free. Because I, you're not for free, but I charge whatever Amazon charges for the book, right? It's not like I'm charging somebody a course or a seminar kind of stuff to do it. You get that for free because I know on the back end, you will trust me. You will know that I know what I'm talking about. You will see the results. I'm giving you something that, em, that emboldens you and forces you, makes you understand what I'm doing better. And from that, you get notoriety and then capital comes to you, right? My business will grow this year. This year, what it took me 15 years to do. Right. You get the compounding effect. That's, and that's in the beginning, it's a hard, it's slog, it's difficult, but then you get momentum, it builds faster. It's, it is a wonderful thing. But it's, you know, you got to, I look back at the last 20 years, the first 15, it was a struggle. Oh, like, yeah. I, like I was in oh, debt, yeah. I had to borrow too much. I, you know, and then I, then the next five was paying it all off. And then the last five have been, pretty amazing. And that, you know, I can stock it away and now it's yep. growing and nuts. but it took a long time, long time, 25 and, years to build it. Yeah. And how many times did you almost lose it? Jeez. I've made some pretty yep. stupid decisions, almost going bankrupt, buying companies that went South. Like you have to learn the hard way. And yep. it's too, that's a great thing. You know, we talk about when you talk about wealth and personal individuals, getting rid of those fallacies that once again, it's, it's not the lottery. You don't win it. You got to earn it forward you keep moving forward just keep moving forward you know step back take another step forward another step back take another step forward keep working and you have an opportunity to work with so many people that have made it right like you see these people you see everything about them you see their financials you see yeah. you see better into these people than anybody no matter what they're saying at the dinner party right you know the truth and everything else you know what they worry about you know where their concerns are because just because you're wealthy doesn't mean you don't have concerns. Of course you have concerns. You're worried you're going to lose yeah. it, right? What do you yeah. think, what are the things that those people are looking at and for in the future? Wait, no, let's, before we get to that, that's the second question. What are the things that you believe are correlation that got them there? Because everybody gets there differently, but what are the attributes that you believe that got your clients to a position where they're like, I need to actually protect this wealth that I've, that I've gained? Yeah, that I mean, summing it up into one or two or three is going to be nearly impossible. But it, but I think there's some there are some threads to pull on. I think I think I think the biggest one is that they didn't ever stop. 
Like they just, that's like I said, you just, you just keep moving forward. You may, you, you maybe got the wrong job out of the gate, but then, you know, you, you switch to a different job. Um, Maybe you were at the wrong company to begin with, but then you switch to a different company. Maybe you start in the wrong career path, but just switch to a different career path. I mean, there's, they just keep going forward, keep going forward. And and almost, almost a hundred percent of their success comes after they're 45, after they're 50. That's what, that's when it, that's when that momentum, yes. all the decisions, all the good choices come to fruition. Now, the difficult part is tracing that decision they made when they're 25 to the wealthy outcome when they're 50. That's, I think, largely the first 25 years are just you know consistent saving and luck, mm-hmm. consistent saving and luck, um, and then and then the 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 uh, the accumulated decisions of 25 years, boom, you're wealthy. Like yeah. it's, it seems like it happens overnight. It but doesn't happen. It's never, no. The, the, the second thing I think is really important that I think culturally when wealth is having this moment where everyone kind of hates wealth, uh, I, I think that's dangerous for two reasons. First, the people that I know that are wealthy are great people. Yeah. Like they are sweethearts. They, yep. they, they give a lot back to the communities. They employ people, they pay people well. Mm-hmm. Um, they just do really good. I mean, I have two or three attorney clients that are trying to figure out a way to, to transition, you know, their the law firm that's worth whatever, $8 million to junior staff that have no, and they're gonna, they're gonna sell it off for way less than it's worth because they want the next generation to continue forward with it. They're basically giving it away to support the next generation as well. I have a friend that did th- the same thing for 150 employees, turned it into an ESOP. And yes, yeah, there we go. Amazing. I'm looking at ESOP for our company as yep. well. So I, I, I think there's, there's so many great people and that are wealthy that we have to say, okay, let's, let's better understand the people that are wealthy. They're not, I mean, they're not robber barons. They're no. not look, the people that do, you know, great. I have a, a buddy of mine who's a, who's a painting contractor. I don't know if he's wealthy, but he's, he's well off. He lives a great life. He doesn't have to work that hard. He gets to make some great decisions. His kids are well taken care of. Kids are going to go to great school. So it's, it's just, he's, he's in great place, but by, by demonizing wealth, we take away the incentive for people that aren't wealthy. We, we make them go, well, that's bad. I don't want that. Yes. But then, you know, then they get to 45 and 50, they made decisions based on that caricature of wealth. And then it's like, how do we, how do we at that point help them? Yeah. It's it's the story they hear when they're ten. That's yeah. the important story, and that's the story they they, they move on. And that's, that's I couldn't hard. I could not agree more. In fact, too, it's not that you can't. I'm not saying that, but by the time you're 45, you're so disadvantaged. I mean, I grew up saying, hearing, "Well, it's a good thing. Here's what you got to do, right?" Here's how we should do it. We should save. There's good debt. There's bad debt. You need to look and save money. You got to have P&Ls, right? Like I was taught these things. It was second nature to me. First job, I'm saving all this income. We got to put it to work. Then I had opportunities because I made good decisions. And then, you know, it's like it cannot be underestimated that people that are coming out of college saying rich people are bad. We should never have rich people. First of all, that's never going away. Rich people are never going away. So it's just, is it concentrated amongst a few people, more people? That's the only question. So then they get to 45 and realize, oh, hold on. Okay. Wealth isn't all that bad. In fact, it's really important. And I'd like to have a little myself. And then you're looking at these other people that have a tremendous amount of wealth going, you can't catch up to them. Right. Or it's not that you can't, but 
you're so disadvantaged. And that's such a problem. And, and I love how you put it. It's at 10. That's yeah. when they need to be fixing these problems. Yeah. It's this narrative that needs to be changed. I, I think that is very, very insightful. And two, it's something that we can participate in, right? Like my wife started a school under those principles, right? But anybody, um, you can mentor young people, right? You can help them. You can talk to them. And if you're young and listening to this, you can change your mindset immediately, right? Um, man, that is such a good, a really good point. I, I really love that. And that comes down to just math and simple economics, right? That has to do with compounding interest. That has to do with oppor- opportunity and opportunity cost, right? Yep. And it also has to do with risk. What yep. you can risk in your 20s versus what you can risk when you're 45 and have two kids, they're not the same thing. Yeah. But, but but at the same time, it's very attractive to look at social media and see the car that the person drives and see the vacation that the person took. And then you want that. So you spend your money on that, that rather than setting it aside and building something. And that's that tension. And and, and Amazon, you know, I, I love Amazon as much as the next person. But the idea that I can get anything I want delivered to me, you know, in an hour or five hours or tomorrow, there there's no delayed gratification. Required. Yes. And that's. That's dangerous for a culture that has such easy access to debt, such easy access to another credit card, such easy access to, and, and we just we, we learn the long the wrong lesson. Yep. Uh, I remember when I when I started at Montana State University, you know, I went into my dorm room and then there was a little there was a little box there on the uh, on the desk. And I opened up the box. Inside the box, four credit card applications, a cookie, like, and a coupon for the for the local sandwich shop. But the point of the box was to get me to subscribe to a credit card. That was the reason it was on my desk mm-hmm. when I went to college as a freshman, which is insane, right? That's why I think the average credit card debt for graduating seniors from college is like $6,000. So there's, I mean, you start off, you start off being, you know, sacrificed as a freshman. Here's a credit card application. You're sacrificed because, you know, I, I'm guessing those companies paid the, the college to be on your desk. Yeah. Right. So the college has a revenue stream, um, but we're sacrificing the students for that. And yeah. that's, I think that's a huge problem. Here's your There's college so many... debt and your credit card debt. <laughs> right. <laughs> now right, go exactly. work the rest of your life to pay it off. Right. Good luck. Yep. <laughs> and they don't even know. Right. I, you know, it's amazing that there is no, like, I was having this conversation and the person almost kind of got mad at me about it where I was like, well, what's the correlation between what you're paying for in college and doing and what you like, what you will receive out of it. And it was a very snipped answer quite back to right back at me. And they're like, it's not all about money. And I'm like, well, to the college it is because they're charging you a hundred thousand dollars for that. That's not all about money. And guess what? You have to pay it. Like you don't get a choice. So to you, you can say that rhetoric, but to everybody else, it's going to force you to pay that and charge you interest to pay it. It is all about the money. And there's this gap where it's like, you shouldn't think about that, but you should pay for it. And it's such a dangerous world that you live in when you say, I should be able to go to the college of my choice, to live a life of my choice, how I want to live to get my fancy art degree or gender studies degree, and then nobody should ever even question the fact that I'm taking out $100,000 in debt to do that. It's, you know, once again, it shows the absolute erosion of basic principles and that everything has a cost. And once you take that debt out, it has to be paid. And how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to do it? And it's almost like we have a 
you know, system that's meant to pry off the unknowing or the ability to make those kind of decisions. Go do whatever you want. Take debt out for it. And here's a credit card to have fun on the way. Go to Starbucks. Yep. Yeah. So how do you get rid of some of these problems? <laughs> right. And I see now you'll know this. You're going to state everybody. Just hold on. All the answers are coming. We're going to fix yeah. the world right now. Thank you, Jonathan. We appreciate this. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. And I think that's, <laughs> that's honest. I think, I think, I think that the, so we have a, uh, we have a module in our basic financial education course that is all about choosing your college and deciding whether or not it's worth it. You know, what is the ROI? Mm-hmm. What's the return yes. on the investment for college? And I, I don't think we can point to, cause I, I mean, my degree is in philosophy, so yeah. I can't, can't point to somebody studying art or or gender studies or something like that and say that's not a successful degree because my, mm-hmm. my degree is philosophy yeah uh, so you if you recognize that this is a thing that you're going to be passionate about and you want to study and you're going to love it and it's going to it's going to create the person you want to be mm-hmm. and you know that there's a path from that person you want to be to the ability to pay those things back yes i mean i, I do think humanities there's a there is something about humanities that leads to great business people. Actually, uh, I, agree. I think there's, a, I think that's 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 well researched and well written. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's just not as direct as a, as a science degree or a or a, or an engineering degree. Like that's okay. I study electrical engineering. I get a job in electrical engineering. That's yes. I mean that's that's that path. That's how that path works. Humanities is a little bit. You know, it's more variable. It's yeah. more. What are you going to do with it? So if, if you're thoughtful going in. And you understand the costs, and you understand how that debt's going to get paid back. And yeah. you know it's the government, right? They're going to pay for that, it. <laughs> you can't. You can't, um, you, you can't pay off one hundred thousand dollars debt with a uh, with a waitering job. Yeah, like you, you you can't expect to be able to do that. So you have to be able to reach for something more than that. And now, yes. is you going to enable that? And if if not, then maybe that's not the right thing to study. It's just, it's, it's connecting the dots yeah. before you begin. I don't know right. why high schools don't have an entire, like they, their high schools, they, they openly say we're here to prepare you for college. Right. Like that's the point. Well, why, why isn't this like a whole entire discussion? Like, why isn't it? Are they, I don't know if they're afraid that there's going to be like, people are going to find out that there's a cost that they have to pay it back. And that, that all of a sudden, maybe I shouldn't be doing this and they don't want that. Or, you know, I don't, I'm really not sure about that, but you writing this book, us having this podcast, asking questions that have no answers and discussing it so people can be like, well, there wasn't a lot of answers out of that. I actually think that that's important, which is funny enough. Like, I really do. Like, yeah. it's this idea of attempting to com- converse over questions that at this present moment don't have answers because I'm hoping somebody listening to this podcast will figure out the answer and go take care of it or simply take care of it for themselves. Right. Right. And that's honestly the goal. That's all we can do. It's that, hey, I planted a seed that may save somebody a lifetime of misery. Right. And that's good enough. Honestly. Yeah. I got an email from from somebody this morning who said, hey, I I just I'm a third of the way through your book and I just want to say thank you. And that's, you know, that's they got it for like seven ninety nine on Amazon. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, I I think that's wonderful. Like, yes, one person one person gets some value out of tying their their life philosophy with their money and they and they put that together and they have a plan on it that's fantastic like yes. that's all i wanted out of the book now hopefully it's not just the one hopefully it's many many more and i know it is i've already gotten lots of lots of emails on it but it's the the ability to i, I don't think i can fix the system yeah. but I, I i think i can affect 
individuals. And that's what I try to do more than anything else. You know, I, it almost makes me wonder, we, we, we got to a point where I feel like society focused way too much on the net outcome of capital and usage back in the, well, after the industrial area, really till probably the early 90s where it was sacrificed at all, we completely ignored the other side. And now it feels like in the 2000s, we swung the other way. We're like, we focus only on that as a culture, but we're no, and we're ignoring the capital part of it. And it almost makes me wonder if we're going to come back somewhere in between where it's like, we're going to merge all of these things together. We're going to, we're going to merge these philosophical questions back into capital. And you're going to find this utopia and it's just going to be like a sprint of progress forward. We have thesis, then antithesis, and then you're hoping for synthesis. I love it. Mm -hmm. Who knows, right? So if it happens in the next 10 years, let's just claim it, right? We, we were talking about it on a podcast. It was because of us. So we right. claim it, everybody, right now. If if this happens in the next 10 years, it was because of me and Jonathan. But That's right. If we get synthesis, it's on us. It's on us. Exactly. <laughs> if we don't, that's not on us. Though. That's not on us. Synthesis. Absolutely. Absolutely. If the world just goes to hell in a handbasket, that is totally not on us. <laughs> oh Well, hey, um, Thank you so much for your time. I, I, I don't want to keep you talking because as you can see, you know, you majored in philosophy and now you're in uh, uh, studying wealth and you help people with wealth. I could just bug you all day. And um, so I won't take any more of your time. But where can people go to find out more about you, what you do, um, learn about you? Where, where can people go? Best place to go is, is to the website. It's uh, mindful.money. There's no .com or .org. It's just mindful.money. Uh, and you can see all of our social media there. You can see services. You can see our courses there. And by all means, you know, ping us on there. And I'm, I'm happy to communicate with folks. Hey, thank you so much. And I, I appreciate you entertaining all my uh, obnoxious questions. Uh, <laughs> so. It's all good, AJ. It's all good. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I appreciate it. And good luck to you. Everybody reach out and find me.